Section 22 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 13. The Siege of Paris. Part 2. The publication of this account of the interview with Bismarck produced through Paris a shiver of indignation. For a moment all parties were united, the very Reds crying out that there must be no more parties, only Frenchmen, and a slight success in a skirmish in one of the suburbs of Paris roused enthusiasm to its height in a few hours. The National Guard now did duty as police, and was also placed on guard on the ramparts. Each man received thirty sous a day. The guard was divided into the old battalions and the new. The old battalions were composed almost entirely of gentlemen and bourgeois, who returned their pay to the government. The new battalions, which were fresh levies of working men, preferred in general a franc and a half a day for doing nothing to higher wages for making shoes, guns, and uniforms. In vain the government put forth proclamations assuring the people that the man who made a chasse rifle was more of a patriot than he who carried one. All through September the weather was delightful, and mounting guard upon the ramparts was like taking a pleasant stroll. The mobile occupied the forts outside of Paris, and were forbidden to come into the city in uniform. Of course there was much hunting for Prussian spies, and many people were arrested and maltreated, though only one genuine spy seems to have been found. The French in any popular excitement seemed to have treachery upon the brain. One phase of their mania was the belief that any light seen moving in the upper stories of a house was a signal to the Prussians, and sometimes a whole district was disturbed because some quiet student had sat reading late at night with a green shade over his lamp, or a mother had been nursing a sick child. As October went on, it became a sore trial to the Parisians to be cut off from all outside news. Not a letter nor a newspaper crossed the lines. Even the agents of foreign governments and Mr. Washburn, the only foreign ambassador in Paris, were prohibited from hearing from their governments, unless all communications were read by Bismarck before being forwarded to them. One great source of suffering to the men in Paris who had sent away their families was the knowledge that they must be in want of money. No one had anticipated a prolonged blockade. Before the gates had been closed, two elderly members of the Committee of Defense, Crémieux and Garnier Pagès, had been sent out to govern the provinces. M. Thiers was visiting all the capitals of Europe, as a sort of ambassador at large, to enlist foreign diplomatic sympathy, and in October it was resolved to send out M. Gambetta, in the hope that he might organize a national assembly, or perhaps induce the southern provinces, where he had great influence, to make a demonstration for the relief of the capital. Provincial France had long chafed under the idea that its government was made and unmade by the Parisians, and there was no great sympathy in the provinces for Paris in her struggle with the Prussians, until it was shown how nobly the city and its inhabitants bore the hardships of the siege. Small sorties continued to be made during October, chiefly with a view of accustoming raw troops to stand fire. On October 28 came news of the surrender of Bazaine at Metz to the Prussians with his army, including officers, of nearly 190,000 men. The universal cry was treachery. The same day that the Prussians forwarded this news into Paris, a small body of German troops was worsted in a sortie beyond Saint-Denis. These two events roused the turbulent party of the population of Paris almost to frenzy, and resulted in a rising called the Emeute of October 31. The disorderly classes living in the suburbs of Belleville and Montmartre, which have taken the place of the old Faubourg Saint-Antoine, assuming the commune for their war-cry, were led on by such men as Ledru-Rollin, Blanqui, and Félix Pia. 
Quote, the party of the commune, says M. de Sarcy, was composed partly of charlatans, partly of dupes, that is, the real members of the commune as a party. The rank and file were simply roughs, ready for any mischief, and, we may add, for any plunder. On the morning of October 31, a great crowd of these men assembled before the Hôtel de Ville, then the seat of government. General Trochu, Jules Favre, the maire of Paris, and even Rochefort, who was a member of the Committee of Defence, harangued them for hours without producing any impression. The days were past when the mob of Paris could be controlled by a harangue. Finally, the crowd made its way into the Hôtel de Ville, and endeavoured to force the Committee of Defence to issue a proclamation which would convene the citizens to vote for a commune. The windows of the Hôtel de Ville were flung open, in spite of the efforts of the members of the government, and lists of the proposed communistic rulers were flung out to the mob. Meantime, the members of the existing government were imprisoned in their council chamber, and threatened by armed men. Jules Favre sat quietly in his chair. Jules Simon sketched upon his blotting-paper. Rifles were pointed at General Trochu. Quote, "'Escape, General!' cried someone in the crowd. Quote, "'I am a soldier, citizen,' he answered, "'and my duty is to die at my post.'" One member of the committee managed, however, to escape, and summoned the National Guard to the assistance of his colleagues. It was eight o'clock in the evening when the troops arrived. At sight of their guns and bayonets, the populace, grown weary of its day's excitement, melted away. Before daylight, order was restored. Quote, Thus, says an American then in Paris, in twelve hours Paris had one Republican government taken prisoner, another set up, and the first restored. End quote. So peace, after a fashion, returned. But Count Bismarck, learning of these events, was strengthened in his determination to keep Paris shut up within her gates till the factions in the city, in the coming days of famine and distress, should destroy one another. M. Thiers had almost concluded an agreement for an armistice of thirty days, during which Paris was to be fed, while an election should be held all over France for a national assembly. But after the disorders of October 31, Count Bismarck refused to hear of any food being supplied to Paris. Negotiations were broken off, and the war went on. Up to this time, bread in Paris had been sufficient for its needs, and not too dear. Wine was plenty, but meat was growing scarce. Horses were requisitioned for food. It was the upper classes who ate horse-flesh and queer animals out of the Jardin des Plantes. The working classes would not touch such things till driven to eat them by absolute famine. Butter rose to five dollars a pound. Cabbages were sold by the leaf. Early in the siege, eggs were three dollars a dozen, and milk soon became unattainable. Quote, Poor little babies died like flies, says an eyewitness. Fuel, too, was growing very scarce and very dear. The women supported their privations bravely, but it is terrible to think what must have been the sufferings of mothers deprived of wholesome food for their little children. The firmness and self-sacrifice of the bourgeoisie were above all praise. All kinds of meats were eaten. Mule was said to be delicious, far superior to beef. Antelope cost eighteen francs a pound, but was not as good as stewed rabbit. Elephant's trunk was eight dollars a pound, it being esteemed a delicacy. Bear, kangaroo, ostrich, yak, etc., varied the bill of fare for those who could afford to eat them. Men of wealth who had lost everything took their misfortunes cheerfully. While the worst qualities of the Parisians came out in some classes, the best traits of the French character shone forth in others. A great deal of charity was dispensed, both public and private, and on the whole the very poorest class was but little the worse for the privations of the siege. The houses left empty by their owners were made over to the refugees from the villages, 
and many amusing stories are told of their embarrassment when surrounded by objects of art, and articles of furniture whose use was unknown to them. At first the theatres were closed, and some of them were turned into military hospitals, but by the beginning of November it was thought better to reopen them. At one theatre Victor Hugo's Les Châtiments was recited, that bitterest arraignment of Napoleon III and the Second Empire. At another Beethoven and Mendelssohn were played, with apologies for their being Germans. The hospital parts of the theatres were railed off, and in the corridors ballet girls, actors, and sisters of charity mingled together. Victor Hugo was in Paris during the siege, but he lent his name to no party or demonstration. The recitation of his verses at the theatre afforded him great delight, but the triumph was short-lived. The attraction of Les Châtiments soon died away. The most popular places of resort for idle men were the clubs. On November 21 one of these was visited by our American observer. He says, quote, the hall was filled to suffocation. Every man present had a pipe or cigar in his mouth. It was a sulphurous place, a pandemonium, a zoological garden, a pantomime, a comedy, a backwoods Fourth of July, and a Donnybrook Fair, all combined. Women, too, were there, the fiercest in the place. Orators roared, and fingers were shaken. One speech was on the infringement of the liberties of the citizen because soldiers were made to march left or right according to the will of their officers. Another considered that the sluggards who went on hospital service with red crosses on their caps were no better than cowards. Then they discovered a spy, as they supposed, in their midst, and time was consumed in hustling him out. Lastly, an orator concluded his speech with awful blasphemy, wishing that he were a titan and could drive a dagger into the Christian's god. The most terrible suffering in Paris during the siege was probably mental, suffering from the want of news but by the middle of November the balloon and pigeon postal service was organized. Balloons were manufactured in Paris and sent out whenever the wind was favorable. It was found necessary, however, to send them off by night, lest they should be fired into by the Germans. A balloon generally carried one or two passengers, and was sent up from one of the now empty railroad stations. It also generally took five small cages, each containing thirty-six pigeons. These pigeons were of various colors and all named. They were expected to return soon to their homes, unless cold, fog, a hawk, or a Prussian bullet should stop them on the way. Each would bring back a small quill fastened by threads to one of its tail-feathers, and containing a minute square of flexible, waterproof paper, on which had been photographed messages in characters so small as to be deciphered only by a microscope. Some of these would be official dispatches, some private messages. One pigeon would carry as much as, printed in ordinary type, would fill one sheet of a newspaper. The Parisians looked upon the pigeons with a kind of veneration. When one, drooping and weary, alighted on some roof, a crowd would collect and watch it anxiously. Sometimes they were caught by the Germans and sent back into Paris with false news. On November 15 a pigeon brought a dispatch saying that the south of France had raised an army for the relief of Paris, and that it was in motion under an old general with the romantic name of Aurel des Paladines, that it had driven the Prussians out of Orléans, and was coming on with all speed to the capital. The Parisians were eager to make a sortie and to join this relieving army. General Trochu was not so eager, having no great confidence in his francs-tireurs, his national guard, and his mobile. They numbered in all four hundred thousand men, but eighty thousand serviceable soldiers would have been worth far more. On November 28, however, the sortie was made, and had the expected army been at hand, it might have been successful. 
the Parisians crossed the Marne, and fought the Prussians so desperately that in two days they had lost more men than in the battle at Gravelotte. But on the third day an order was given to return to Paris. The government had received reliable information that the army of the Loire, under Aurel des Paladines, had met with a reverse, and would form no junction with the Parisian forces. By the end of November cannon had been cast in the beleaguered city, paid for not by the government but by individual subscription. These guns were subsequently to play a tragic part in the history of the city. Some carried farther than the Prussian guns. All of them had names. The favorite was called Josephine, and was a great pet with the people. Christmas Day of that sad year arrived at last, and New Year's Day, the great and joyful fête-day in all French families. A few confectioners kept their stores open, and a few boxes of bonbons were sold but presents of potatoes or small packages of coffee were by this time more acceptable gifts. Nothing was plenty in Paris but champagne and Coleman's mustard. The rows upon rows of the last-named article in the otherwise empty windows of the grocers reminded Englishmen and Americans of Grumio's cruel offer to poor Catherine of the mustard without the beef, since she could not have the beef with the mustard. Here is the bill of fare of a dinner given at a French restaurant upon that Christmas day. Soup from horse-meat mince of cat, shoulder of dog with tomato sauce, jugged cat with mushrooms, roast donkey and potatoes, rat, peas and celery, mice on toast, plum pudding. One remarkable feature of the siege was that everybody's appetite increased enormously. Thinking about food stimulated the craving for it, and by New Year's Day there were serious apprehensions of famine. The reckless waste of bread and breadstuffs in the earlier days of the siege was now repented of. Flour had to be eked out with all sorts of things, and the bread eaten during the last weeks of the siege was a black and sticky mixture made up of almost anything but flour. All Paris was rationed. Poor mothers, leaving sick children at home, stood for hours in the streets, in the bitter cold, to obtain a ration of horse-flesh, or a few ounces of this unnutritious bread. After news came of the retreat of the Army of the Loire, great discouragement crept over the garrison. The mobile from the country, who had never expected to be shut up in Paris for months, began to pine for their families and villages. What might not be happening to them, and they far away? Every day there was a panic of some kind in the beleaguered city, some rumour, true or false, to stir men's souls. Besides this, the garrison had for months been idle, and was consumed with ennui. Among the prevailing complaints was one that General Trochu was too pious, they might have said of him with truth that, though brave and determined when once in action, he was wanting in decision. The garrison in Paris had no general who could stir their hearts, no leader of men. General Trochu and the rulers under him waited to be moved by public opinion. They were ready to do what the masses would dictate, but seemed not to be able to lead them. In a besieged city the population generally bends to the will of one man. In this case it was one man, or a small body of men, who bent to the will of the people. The winter of 1871 was the coldest that had been known for twenty years. Fuel and warm clothing grew scarce. The Rothschilds distributed twenty thousand dollars' worth of winter garments among the suffering, and others followed their example till there was no warm clothing left to buy. But the suffering in every home was intense, and at last soldiers were brought in frozen from the ramparts. There was of course no gas, and the city was dimly lighted by petroleum. Very great zeal was shown throughout Paris for hospital service. French military hospitals and the service connected with them are called ambulance. Quote, we were all full of recollections, says M. de Sarcy, 
of the exertions made on both sides in the American Civil War. Our model hospital was formed on the American plan. The American Sanitary Commission had sent out specimens of hospital appliances to the Exposition Universelle of 1867. These had remained in Paris, and the hospital under canvas, when set up, excited great admiration. Everything was for use, nothing for show. Quote, the four great medicines that we recognize, said the American surgeon in charge, are fresh air, hot and cold water, and quinine. End quote. Among the bravest and most active litter-bearers were the Christian brothers, men, not priests, but vowed to poverty, celibacy, and the work of education. Quote, they advanced wherever bullets fell, says M. de Sarcy, to pick up the dead or wounded, recoiling from no task, however laborious or distasteful, never complaining of their food, drinking only water, and after their stretcher-work was done, returning to their humble vocation of teachers, without dreaming that they had played the part of heroes." Before Bazaine surrendered at Metz, eager hopes had been entertained that the army raised in the south by Chanzy and Gambetta might unite with his one hundred and seventy-two thousand soldiers in Metz, and march to the relief of Paris. But to this day no one knows precisely why Bazaine took no steps in furtherance of this plan, but instead surrendered ignominiously to the Germans. It is supposed that being attached to the Emperor and dreading a republic, he declined to fight for France if it was to benefit the rabble government of Paris, as he called the Committee of Public Defence. He seems to have thought that the Germans, after taking Paris, would make peace, exacting Alsace and Lorraine, and then restore the Emperor. Nothing could have been braver or more brilliant than the efforts of Chanzy and Gambetta on the Loire. At one time they were actually near compelling the Prussians to raise the siege of Paris. For two hundred and fifty thousand men was a small army to invest so large a city. But the one hundred and fifty thousand German soldiers who were besieging Metz were enabled by Bazaine's surrender to reinforce the troops beleaguering the capital. Gambetta seems to have been at the time the only man in France who showed himself to be a true leader of men, and amidst numerous disadvantages he did nobly. He and Chanzy died twelve years later, within a week of each other. From September 29, when the siege began, up to December 27, the Parisian soldiers, four hundred thousand in number, such as they were, had never, except in occasional sorties, encountered the Prussians, nor had any shot from Prussian guns entered their city. On the night of December 27 the bombardment began. It commenced by clearing what was called the Plateau d'Avron, to the east of Paris. The weather was intensely cold, the earth as hard as iron and as slippery as glass. The French do not rough their horses even in ordinary times, and slipperiness is a public calamity in a French city. The troops, stationed with little shelter on the Plateau d'Avron, had no notion that the Germans had been preparing masked batteries. The first shells that fell among them produced indescribable confusion. The men rushed to their own guns to reply, but their balls fell short about five hundred yards. It became evident that the Plateau d'Avron must be abandoned, and that night, in the cold and the darkness, together with the slippery condition of the ground, which was worst of all, General Trochu superintended the removal of all the cannon. The Prussian batteries were admirably placed and admirably served. But tremendous as the bombardment was, sometimes a shell every two minutes, it is astonishing how little real damage it did to the city. The streets were wide, the open spaces numerous, the houses solidly built, with large courtyards. In the middle of January, when the extreme cold moderated, hundreds of people would assemble in the Place de la Concorde, looking skyward. A black object would appear, with a small bright spot in it, 
and making a graceful curve in the air with a whizzing humming sound would drop suddenly with a resounding boom in some distant quarter in the city then the spectators greatly interested in the sight waited for another the shells which the parisians called obus were like an old-fashioned sugar-loaf and weighed sometimes one hundred and fifty pounds but though by reason of the great distance of the prussian batteries the damage was by no means in proportion to the number of shells sent into the city many of them struck public buildings hospitals and orphan asylums in spite of the red cross flags displayed above them by january nineteen when the siege had lasted four months and the bombardment three weeks the end seemed to be drawing near another sortie was attempted but there was a dense fog the usual accompaniment of a january thaw and its only result was the loss of some very valuable lives. Then General Trochu asked for an armistice of two days to bury the dead. But his real object was that Jules Favre might enter the Prussian lines and endeavour to negotiate. Before this took place, however, Trochu himself resigned his post as military governor. He had sworn that under him Paris should never capitulate. General Vinois took his command. The moment the government of defence was known to be in extreme difficulty, the communists issued proclamations and provoked risings. The Hôtel de Ville was again attacked. In this rising famished women took a prominent part. Twenty-six people were killed in the émeute, and only twenty-eight by that day's bombardment. On January 23, Jules Favre went out to Versailles. Paris was hushed. It was not known that negotiations were going on, but all felt that the end was near at hand. No one dared say the word capitulate, though some of the newspapers admitted that by February 3 there would not be a mouthful of bread in the city. On January 27 the Parisians learned their fate. The following announcement appeared in the official journal. Quote, so long as the government could count on an army of relief, it was their duty to neglect nothing that could conduce to the prolongation of the defence of Paris. At present our armies, though still in existence, have been driven back by the fortune of war. Under these circumstances, the government has been absolutely compelled to negotiate. We have reason to believe that the principle of national sovereignty will be kept intact by the speedy calling of an assembly, that during the armistice the German army will occupy our forts, that we shall preserve intact our national guards and one division of our army, and that none of our soldiers will be conveyed beyond our frontier as prisoners of war." The result was so inevitable that it did not spread the grief and consternation we have known in many modern cases of surrender. Those who suffered most from the sorrow of defeat were not the red brawlers of Belleville, who cried loudest that they had been betrayed, but the honest, steady-going bourgeoisie, who for love of their country had for four months borne the burden and distress of resistance. During the four months of siege sixty-five thousand persons perished in Paris, ten thousand died in hospitals, three thousand were killed in battle, Sixty-six hundred were destroyed by smallpox, and as many by bronchitis and pneumonia. The babies, who died chiefly for want of proper food, numbered three thousand, just as many as the soldiers who fell in battle. Two sad weeks passed, the Parisians meanwhile waiting for the meeting of a national assembly. During those weeks the blockade of Paris continued, and the arrival of provisions was frequently retarded at the Prussian outposts. Nor were provision carts safe when they had passed beyond the Prussian lines, for there were many turbulent Parisians lying in wait to rob them. All Paris was eager for fresh fish and for white bread. The moment the gates were opened, twenty-five thousand persons poured out of the city, most of whom were in a state of anxiety and uncertainty where to find their families. At last peace was made. One of its conditions was that the Germans were to occupy two of the forts that commanded Paris 
until that city paid two hundred millions of francs, or forty million dollars, as its ransom. It was also stipulated that the Prussian army was to make a triumphal entry into the city, not going farther, however, than the Place de la Concorde. This took place March 1, 1871, but was witnessed by none of the respectable Parisians, although the German soldiers were surrounded by a hooting crowd, whom they seemed to regard with little attention. Thus ended the siege of Paris, and the day afterwards the homeward march of the Germans was begun. End of chapter 13 End of section 22